Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Encero, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. The CDC reported earlier this year that America's adolescents are facing a mental health crisis of epidemic proportions. More than one in three high school students had worsening mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic, and nearly half felt persistently sad or hopeless. Moreover, not everyone is affected to the same degree. With female students and those who identify as LGBTQ experiencing higher levels of mental distress and suicide-related behaviors. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Amrita Rai, the Clinical Director of the Inland Empire Health Plan, or IEHP, a managed Medicaid healthcare plan in Southern California. IEHP is partnering with Molina Healthcare, County Behavioral Health, the Education Departments in Riverside and San Bernardino counties, and some local school districts and charter schools to implement the Student Behavioral Health Incentive Program a three-year state program to expand prevention and early intervention behavioral health services. We talk about the goals of the program, why it is needed, and some of the reasons why children and adolescents are struggling. We also discuss 988, an upgrade to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number, which, beginning on July 16, 2022, will connect individuals with trained counselors and, if needed, send specially trained responders with the aim of reducing armed law enforcement interventions. Welcome to Managed Carecast, Amrita. Can you introduce yourself and describe what you do at Inland Empire Health Plan? Sure, and and thank you, Allison, for inviting me to have a chat with you today. So my name is Amrita Rai. I'm the Clinical Director of Community Behavioral Health at Inland Empire Health Plan, and I've been, I'm going on my ninth year there. And Inland Empire Health Plan is located in Northern California, if I have that correct, and you serve a Medicaid population? Close. We're actually located in Southern California. (laughs) Oops. And <laughs> that's okay. Um, and we we actually are sort of blessed to be very focused on the Inland Empire, so Riverside and San Bernardino County. And as you know, San Bernardino County is the largest uh, geographic uh, square foot kind of square mile region in the United States. So we have the added gift of trying to be as creative as we can to to ensure that that our reach is in the rural areas of a very, very large county. So we're talking today about a program that was launched in the spring, I believe, a youth behavioral crisis program that you're doing in conjunction with school districts around the mental health crisis that we've been seeing in children and adolescents for Mm -hmm. a couple of years now, but it's become particularly acute. Can you describe the program and how it got started? Sure. So I believe you're talking about uh, the Student Behavioral Health Incentive Program, and I'll refer to it, it's a mouthful, I'll refer to it as SB HIP going forward, if that's okay. So 
Um, so basically, SB HIP was derived from Assembly Bill 133. There's a little section 5961 because that Assembly Bill is rather large. It also is a part of the Children and Youth Behavioral Health Initiative. So CYBHI or the Children and Youth Behavioral Health Initiative, this is a $4.4 billion large initiative with the goal of essentially improving the overall health and wellness, which includes mental health uh, for our youth. And SBHIP is the school-based program is about 389 million of that 4.4 billion. So we are fortunate in our counties to uh, have uh, close to about 50 million of that and um, split almost evenly between San Bernardino and Riverside. And this is a three-year initiative, the, the SB HIP um, incentive program is a three-year initiative. And the goals are simple, basically to increase preventive and early intervention behavioral health services on or near school campuses. Traditionally, um, managed care plans haven't really engaged in the school space before. And that is one of the reasons the Department of Healthcare Services um, and the California Department of Education and all these big kind of organizations that traditionally haven't intersected in a program like that kind of came together and said, schools are where our kids are most of their waking lives. So let's come together in this kind of unprecedented partnership figure out where we intersect and create this beautiful brand new ecosystem that uh, engages our youth, the schools and their parents and guardians and families in ensuring that our kids have no delay and increased access to the prevention side of mental health. What does that look like or what will it look like? I know, you know, it's a three-year initiative, mm -hmm. so planning mm -hmm. is underway, but what do you expect that will look like? Well, I, I mean, I, I, can, I can say that I expect it uh, to be better than we found it, right? That's the whole goal. Now, this has been a really, really fun and stressful and interesting um, project so far. It launched January 1st of this year, 2022. And this first year is very focused on gathering as much data as we can. So sourcing existing data from various, um, um, you know, the, the CDE, our local uh, county offices of education, and every, everywhere we can find data related to children TK through 12. That's the focus of this incentive program. And then also um, identifying what resources are going into the schools and um, ensuring that we have key stakeholder feedback, children, adolescents, um, teachers, um, families, guardians, parents, all that, and put it together and form this gap analysis. And once we have this gap analysis, we are to utilize the information to inform what interventions we are going to choose. Um, and 
based on the requirements of the program, we will be choosing four interventions from a list of 14 that you can actually find in AB 133. And they're pretty large categories. So we will be picking four interventions per, per uh, county that are informed by the gap analysis. So we're about five months in and we will start talking about those interventions probably around um, August. So we're, we're close. And then interventions will be implemented January of 2023. And the interventions will, or the SB HIP program kind of sunsets at the end of 2024. But I have to say, one of the most exciting parts about this um, incentive program and one of the mandates from our Department of Healthcare Services is that what we build is going to be sustainable beyond the life of the incentive program. So, um, you know, this is very different than most grants because most grants, after they end, usually the program ends. But I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that our Department of Healthcare Services and all the organizations that have uh, come together in this because we are, we are building something sustainable so that uh, we can potentially utilize best practices and spread through multiple other districts. To take a step back for a minute, why are we seeing such an increase in behavioral health issues in children and adolescents, increase in mental health disorders, suicide, suicide ideation, depression, anxiety? What are your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, on all of our minds is the pandemic, right? Um, there's a lot of research that says that our youth were headed into a crisis of mental health even before the pandemic. But now we've layered on this unexpected, really severe uh, public health emergency that has compounded the, the uh, increase of risk factors a tenfold. And you know, over the past few years, yes, risk factors have increased, Job stress has led to potentially food insecurity, um, isolation, depression, anxiety, all the things that you mentioned, um, chronic illnesses being unchecked. You know, when, when you think of the, the multitude of people of all ages who already had traumas that they were dealing with, then you compound those traumas with things that we were not expecting over the last few years, we have accumulate, uh, a cumulative response. You know, we've heard about uh, toxic stress and, and we're seeing that traumas are redefined now as we get more insights into uh, mental illness as well as chronic physical illnesses. We look in, and see that the traumas aren't necessarily just defined very restrictively to, you know, physical traumas or, or uh, abuse. We're looking at, at traumas as um, instability in households, parents going to jail, kids being in foster care, um, anything that affects the, the safe upbringing of a child can be viewed as a trauma. And when you compound that stress and that trauma, the response has become more acute. So and then 
Additionally, on top of that, we already had some very specific, more vulnerable populations, um, LGBTQ+, um, low-income youth, youth in rural areas that have very little access, um, children in immigrant households. So, so all of this is compounded. And so it's no doubt that we're seeing um, an uptick. In fact, if you go on to the CDC website, there is a really alarming kind of animation. Uh, it, it's specifically when you search for suicide, youth and suicide. And you put in the years, I think it starts in, in 1999, if I'm not mistaken, or 2000. And you keep clicking through the years and you'll see that suicide, um, it consistently rises. And I believe, um, I might be mistaken here, I think the last bit of data is in 2021 um, or late 2020. And it's so alarming because you see the age group of 10 to 19 and suicide is the second leading cause of death. And that to me, it hurts my heart because how preventable is this? You, you think of a 10 year old that, that suicide is an option for a 10-year-old. And this is only superseded by um, the, the first cause of death is accidental overdose. And suicide is such a complex issue. It, it takes, you, sometimes you don't know, you know the, the cause of the overdose or the intention behind it. So you know, my assumption is that a lot of that accidental overdose could also be you know, suicide. So I think that was a long kind of answer to your question uh, related to just why we're seeing kind of an uptick, but we were already headed there. This pandemic over the last few years just sort of tipped us over. So I made that flub in the beginning of our conversation about where you're located, Northern, Southern California. Yeah. The entire state is an example of the extremes we've seen in climate change and your state has been so affected by a number of tragedies. And you also mentioned LGBTQ issues and that's been in the news. How does current events affect kids these days in the population that you serve? I read an article recently that climate issues are a huge source of anxiety for a lot of people. Kids in other mm -hmm. states may not be able to get the care they used to get for, you know, for reasons that we've seen recently. Do those factors weigh on kids' minds, do you think? Mm -hmm. Well, you think of, you know, you were talking, I'm thinking of uh, social media and how accessible information is constantly. You know, even when, when, when I grew up, and, and, I'm, a, and I'm, I'm an immigrant to this country, and so I, I came to the United States when I was about six years old. And granted, there have been many technological advances since then, but I think about my growing up, my choices were, do I ride my bike outside? Do I, uh, you know, listen to my mom and do my chores and do my homework and maybe, you know, watch 30 minutes of TV before I go to bed? Uh, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have access. You know, when there was something on TV that my parents didn't want me to see, they'd turn off the TV. And you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword, um, this, this access to information. Our children are so informed, 
but yet they're having to deal with adult problems. They're having to deal with adult decisions. And it, it's, it's sort of growing our children up a lot quicker than their little brains have developed to handle. And so, yes, I absolutely think it affects our children, but it's hard to kind of roll back technology, right? So, so how do we respond to that? You know, I, I think that one of the best ways is for guardians and families and who, who whatever communities surround these children, schools, teachers, whoever, we need to arm ourselves with understanding these little brains are, are not yet developed. They're not going to be developed for a long time. So when, when they're exposed to these major things, you know, shootings and um, climate change and all these big world problems, their little brains are not able to understand it as an adult brain that's fully developed is. So they start making connections that, that might not be completely accurate. And then you think of anxiety uh, and depression that, that um, kind of manifests from that. So, I mean, one of the best ways that we can do this is to understand where that little child's brain is and understand that we need to really be intentional in ensuring that those connections that they're making are, are valid, are real, are realistic, are, are true, so that they don't start developing these anxieties and these depressions because they can't understand what they're reading and seeing. This program you said focuses on prevention. Mm -hmm. um, what is the role, if any, of primary care providers and pediatricians once mm -hmm. the interventions are implemented? Do you know what that will be yet? Well, I mean, first, I, the role of a primary care pediatrician is huge because how often do you take your child first to go see a talk therapist, right? No, I mean, we, we talk about from the time your baby is born, you know, you have your well child visits, you know, you have your immunization. So the, the, the responsibility and the burden of these PCPs and pediatricians is absolutely huge. They have their first contact with the children, first contact with the family. And they are often the ones who will have the ability to uh, early on detect if something's going on and to provide that early intervention linkage. Uh, we, we are seeing so much more um, research and focus on the importance of integrating mental health into primary care. I'm sure you've all heard, you know, mental health is primary care. It really shouldn't be disconnected because there's, there's such a strong mind-body connection. Um, especially when, when it comes to adverse childhood events or ACEs. So your question with how does the PCP and pediatrician kind of come into play with SB-HIP? So depending on the interventions that are going to be informed by the gap analysis, um, the goal is to form a closed loop system. So right now, our managed care plans like IEHP and others we have our system. Schools, they have their system. You know, they have school counselors, they have school uh, nurses, 
um, our, our mental health plans, like our county mental health plans, they have their system. Fortunately for IHP and our two Riverside and San Bernardino counties, we have a fabulous relationship that we share information um, and we continually develop uh, new ways to connect our systems. But now adding the school system is going to be uh, something new. And the, the goal is these siloed systems, how do we connect back and create like a closed loop system? So um, depending on the intervention, as I mentioned, if a child is being seen, this would, this would be the, the, the dream, right? If a child is being seen in, in school for a health issue, how is that information getting back to their primary care physician or the pediatrician? And if there's a treatment plan developed by one or both, how are we uh, coordinating that treatment plan and ensuring that our goals align and we get the child where they need to be to be successful in life? So one of the key assessments right now as we're working on the gap analysis for SBHIP is to identify the systems and where there are gaps in the system. So I don't exactly know what it's going to look like, but we know the goal is to create a closed loop system so no child falls between the cracks as they kind of jump from you know, system of care to system of care. And can you just, I know you're going through the gap analysis now, but can you just give mm -hmm. an example of what a gap would be and what an intervention might be to address it? Mm -hmm. You said there's a long list and you'll pick four, so. Mm -hmm. So the, the main goal uh, is to increase access to behavioral health services focused on prevention and early intervention. So one gap could be that when a child begins to express or exhibit symptoms, generally research shows that it could be years before that child finally gets the help that they need. Meanwhile, that early symptom has become more complex and gotten to a point that now you have to take notice. And, and it, could have, it could have been resolved or, or prevented years ago. So a gap could be that if there were more um, wellness centers uh, or, or more, more or counselors available to uh, assist the children in the schools and be able to then turn around and build the health plan, the managed care plan, then perhaps we could get more resources available right away as opposed to having that child uh, have delay in care. So as I mentioned in the past, um, traditionally managed care plans have not been involved in the school systems and, and, and vice versa because the systems are so disconnected and there's kind of no billing relationship. So uh, Department of Healthcare Services has said, identify your gaps and then create relationships in order for uh, school counselors, therapists to be able to build a health plan. And that kind of develops a sustainable process. You know, another one is uh, telehealth. So 
would access increase in certain rural areas if we're able to kind of infuse that school or district with uh, the option to immediately connect with a provider via telehealth because that provider can't be on site. Uh, and another gap, I know you asked for one and I'm giving you a few. <laughs> now they're all coming to mind. Another gap could be that, you know, what kind of technology, because that's sort of the, what, you know, adolescents in a certain age group, actually a, a large white age group, connect better with and, and necessarily an app and may not necessarily connect with um, a human being one-on-one -on -one because this is prevention, right? So, so um, you know, there are some really, really fascinating, creative apps out there that connect with children. If they're going to be on their phone anyway and social media anyway, how about we bring some positivity to it, right? And, and start retraining the brain um, early on in a mode or modality that children connect with. So then our goal would be, how do we bring those creative solutions to the schools, to the districts, to the children? Another question I thought of is, how will parent engagement work in this? I know mm -hmm. from being a parent myself and mm -hmm. working in youth programs previously, sometimes in certain schools, it's really hard to get parents to come to meetings or learn about these health issues, or they have barriers they have no control over, like their work or their immigration status or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. how, how will that play out here? So we know that because the managed care plans are so new to the schools and the districts, we are very sensitively and thoughtfully engaging in this space. We know trust is earned. We can't just expect to come in and gain um, family and parents' trust. And so we're really leaning heavily on our county offices of education and our local education agencies to sort of guide us through that process. So right now is interesting because it's summer months and we're trying to gather as much information as possible, but kids are not on campuses and, you know, and a lot of families and parents are on vacation. And so we will most likely engage in um, some sort of marketing to inform the parents of what's coming. And we know the need is out there and hopefully by getting some of the uh, focus groups and the stakeholder kind of key informant interviews with families, we'll be able to find champions to engage the, the other families in, in what's coming. And this is not directly related to what you're doing, but next week, I think on July 16th, the 988 mm -hmm. National mm -hmm. Mental Health Crisis Number launches. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit and your knowledge of it and mm -hmm. how it will help your community and really the, the whole country? Sure. I'm so excited about this uh, because, you know, I was just reading a little while ago, some research shows that during the pandemic, um, calls to suicide hotlines increased by 800%, Wow, which is incredible. In fact, I think I read that on the CDC website. We are, we are partnering with our county mental health plans 
on how we can um, connect and market this 988 line. And so we're, I believe the county is kind of taking lead in this, um, but we're, we're ready to connect with them and, and move this forward. But it's, it's so incredibly needed. I know we give out the um, suicide hotline, the Trevor Project, and everything we can when our members call um, the health plan. But it's, it's heartbreaking to think someone reaches out and is put on hold or has a long wait. So, I mean, the concept behind this 988 line is just fabulous. And as I understand it, it's supposed to be an alternative to calling 911, mm -hmm. which may bring, say, law enforcement when yes. what they really, what the parties mm -hmm. really need is a mental health professional mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if someone needs to go to a scene. Yes. And, you know, when we talk about stigma, you know, one thing that the pandemic has brought to light is how important our mental health is. You know, this has been an awful, more so for a lot of people who have lost loved ones. And, but it's so interesting to see that although we have a lot of work to do with, with stigma and, um, you know, increasing awareness that mental health is just as important as physical health, I have to say that you know, throughout this whole pandemic, there's been a lot of focus from multiple state agencies and local agencies, how, how damaging isolation is and, and how important it is to stay connected. And, you know, what are symptoms of depression? And there's been so much in the last few years, there've been, um, you know, billboards we've seen that I've never seen before. So, I'm really encouraged, and this 988 line is just following that that line of engaging people in their mental health and showing that folks who are experiencing mental health issues, depression, do need very specific um, connections, right? Because calling a 911 line, you you might not uh, a mental health illness or someone who is um, passively suicidal may not be as urgent as someone who's having a heart attack, you know? And so this is, this is a great uh, option for folks to be able to call that line and um, find encouragement and some hope. Is there anything else that I forgot to ask you or that you want to add about this initiative that's kicking, that has kicked off? I, I do have one thing, and it's, you know, the, the state agreed at, with, with the multiple different state organizations that bringing the services to the schools would be, would be impactful, as opposed to taking the child out of the school and having them see multiple providers. And, and one of the things that, that has driven that is research shows that mo over half of the adult diagnosed mental illnesses can be diagnosed before the age or by the age of 14, which kind of goes back to my comment that uh, once a child so shows symptoms, sometimes it takes many, many years for them to actually get help. And the other interesting point is that 
most all substance use disorders can be diagnosed by adolescence. So you think about what kind of impact this program will definitely have, not on just this generation, but on multiple generations to come. It's just, it, it blows my mind just how important this work is and how we can potentially spread it to the, uh, to the other districts and schools once we kind of get some best practices going. That is an interesting point to make when I think about people I know of in my own life who are adults. You know, I know that they've struggled with certain issues for a very, very long time. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Um, maybe we can get an update in a couple of years. Absolutely. Would love to. If you or someone you know is in crisis, help is available by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline toll-free number, which is 988 beginning on July 16, 2022, or call the existing number, 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to reach your local certified crisis center. To see the show notes, visit the website of AJMC at AJMC.com. And if you like the show, please share it on social media, on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal.